Uh, if you were with us at the start of last year, 2013, that long past year, uh, you might recall that we began the year by examining and considering how the Christian faith compares with and contrasts with some of the great religions of the world, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism. We called that series, What Do We All Believe? And if you weren't here for that, you can listen to it or watch it online on our website if you'd like. That was last January. So it, it seemed fitting in our planning that this January, we begin the year by moving into a new teaching series in which we turn the focus to the Christian faith particularly and the different traditions and denominations within Christianity. So in a step of noticeable creativity, we're calling this series, What Do We All Believe in Christianity? And as it was a case last year, in case you're new with us, that this series is going to be a bit unusual for us because our focus through these coming weeks is, is not so much going to be in specific biblical texts, but it's going to be on learning where do we agree, where do we differ within the different traditions and denominations of the Christian faith? Why do we take different scriptures so differently at times? Now, one thing I know is this, with, within our own church family here at, at, at Evergreen, Imago, and Mosaic in our gatherings, we have individuals from a range of Christian backgrounds and denominations. I, for example, I didn't grow up within the Christian Missionary Alliance, which is the tradition and denomination of which Southview is a part. Uh, my tradition growing up was called the Plymouth Brethren. I don't know if you've heard of that. It's not very big. And, and one thing that is a reality, it, it's easy for us to get biased toward, for the particular Christian tradition that we either grew up in or are part of. Uh, kind of like we think, if the Christian Missionary Alliance was good enough for the Apostle Paul, it's good enough for me. We can have that kind of attitude, but it's helpful for us to remember that we at Southview, we come from a range of Christian backgrounds. Some of you perhaps did grow up within the Alliance Church. Others, you came from a Reformed tradition or, or were Baptists or Mennonites. Others here may have been part of the Roman Catholic Church. Still others may have been Eastern Orthodox or Anglicans or Pentecostals. So, so in, in light of that, here's one of the realities that I so want us to be aware of as we move through this study. That for some of us, we came from one of those traditions I mentioned perhaps feeling very well-fed and nourished in our relationship with Jesus. It was a life-giving experience, felt grace-filled. It, it felt like it was centered on the gospel. And, and so you're thankful for the tradition within the body of Christ uh, and wall that that gave you as you grew up within it. That was the case for me within the Plymouth Brethren. But others, though, might have come from the very same Christian tradition, and, and for you, it felt lifeless. It felt legalistic, just empty religiosity, and, and like it was missing the gospel. So you might understandably feel concerned with anything positive that is said about that tradition from which you came. And, and I completely understand that. But the reality is this. In each of the Christian, the authentically Christian traditions and denominations that we're going to be looking at, there are healthy, biblical, vibrant local churches, and there are very unhealthy, legalistic, errant local churches. And that is true within the Christian Missionary Alliance. It's true within the Baptists, the Anglicans, Eastern Orthodox, and Roman Catholics. 
So what we're going to do, we're going to thoughtfully consider how did the one church that Jesus started end up with all these varied and at times divergent expressions? Where did we all come from? And, and really, in light of that, what does unite us? What distinguishes us? Because there are some very significant differences um, among us all. And again, to be clear, our aim in this series is not to kind of create any kind of straw man out of these other traditions and then tear it down to convince you how right we are within the alliance. I, I don't believe that. I, I, actually, I believe we're right within the alliance, but it's not limited just to the alliance. But instead, our approach is to do this. I, I, to, it's simply to say, you know, all these Christians who, who call upon the name of Christ from different traditions and denominations, they likely have something to teach us. So what could we learn if we listen to them? I mean, how have they experienced the presence of God? I mean, do we have something to discover from them about following Jesus? Can we learn something from others about how to walk life on life with one another? And, and what might they learn from us? So those are some of our objectives in this series. And today we're going to begin by looking at Roman Catholicism. And, and just by me saying that, that some of you might get your back up just by me saying that, but let's, let's walk through this together. Because one of the realities is this, in, in the whole body of Christians in the world, about half of those who identify themselves as Christians in our world are Roman Catholics. And, and so clearly there is no way to adequately cover all the areas we'd like to today about Roman Catholicism. But we're going to be coming back to it when we talk about the Reformation a bit in a, in a few weeks. But there are going to be four key questions that kind of guide us both in leading into this series and in our study today. And, and first, the first question is going to be, where did the church come from, the, the early church? And, and second, how did Roman Catholicism develop? Why Rome? Why did that become so prominent? Thirdly, then, we're going to look at how, did, how does Roman Catholicism then develop their doctrine? Why did they end up at such different places in, in light of biblical teaching? And, and lastly, we want to look at is, is there anything that we can learn from Roman Catholicism together? That's a lot to cover, isn't it? It is, so we might as well get going with it. And, and let's start with this. Where did the Christian church come from? Where did it come from? I mean, what were the beginnings of the church? Now, not just the Roman Catholic church, but the church collectively. And, and just to remind us of this, our beginnings as the body of Christ were rooted and grounded in the Jewish faith. I mean, think of Jesus, the one we follow, was a Jew. His disciples were all Jews. They lived in Palestine. They worshiped in the temple in Israel. They, they gathered. They received teaching in the synagogues. So early Christian worship was patterned after synagogue worship. That's what it looked like. So even today, if you go to a worship service at a friend's synagogue, you'll see similar elements I mean, prayers, the reading of scripture, teaching from scripture, some kind of worship and song, because early Christian worship was patterned after synagogue worship. We didn't start all this uh, within the church. And then additionally, the form of church leadership that we have in the church with, with elders leading, that comes directly out of the form of leadership in Judaism in the first century. 
So we're indebted to the Jewish faith and our, and our friends from that faith because so much of our pattern of worship flows from theirs. Got that picture? It's kind of intriguing. Now, now this, from there in the early church, the early church had the apostles and the apostles, they were largely the 12 disciples or 11 that were left over of Jesus. And, and they began leading the church. And as they began to lead, they lead, began to lead the church in worshiping in different expressions. And particularly, that, that started to change things when the apostle Paul moved out into the Gentile world. So there came to be really new ways of doing church uh, among those who were unfamiliar with Judaism. So instead of speaking in Aramaic or Hebrew in their worship gatherings, they would begin to speak Greek as a dominant language. So, so picture the scene as, as the church starts moving into different cultures in this kind of way. I mean, in, in the beginning, there weren't different denominations in the church. It's, I know it's hard to grasp, but in the beginning, there was no aligned church. There were no Baptists. There was no Orthodox or Anglicans. There was just one church expressed in creatively different ways in different cities and locations. That's how it began. And in the beginning, think of this, they were simply called followers of the way. It's a great term, isn't it? Followers of the way, the way being Jesus. And then over time, in Antioch was the first city they were called this, they started to be called Christians, which literally means little Christ, because it spoke of who they were following, what they wanted to be. And, and because when Jesus called people to follow him, he didn't invite them to a particular denomination. He simply said what? Follow me. Follow me. And he didn't give them a lot of doctrine. Intriguingly, he didn't. Instead, Jesus said, this is the way I want you to live. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, and love your neighbor of yourself. That's what they had. So, so think about this. During its first several centuries, the church hadn't even finalized the, the, the books, the letters that were going to be included in the New Testament. It wasn't until about the four, late 4th four century that that happened. So before the church, before the body of Christ could point to the New Testament canon and say, this is what they, we believe, what they did was they started to develop creeds. Now, a creed was simply kind of a, a summary declaration of what followers of Jesus believed of what the orthodox teaching was in the body of Christ. And, and one of these early creeds, it actually flowed out of a symbol. And it was a symbol of a fish. Perhaps you've seen this kind of symbol before. Now, they, it was called ichthus, which is simply the Greek term for fish. Now, those letters in the Greek, that is ichthus, those were an acronym for a creed. It reminded followers of Jesus, because this was a secret symbol because of the persecution going on in the church. It reminded them, Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. Say that with me, will you? Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. If you went to an early church and looked at their doctrine statement of faith page, that's what you'd see. It was very simple. This is what we believe. This is what we follow. And over time, the church then started to elaborate on the creeds and develop expressions of faith. In the second century, the church developed what was called the Old Roman Creed. You may not have read it particularly, but you're familiar with much of its contents. Because it was revised slightly over the centuries, until about the 5th century, it, it came to be expressed in the form we now say regularly. 
It's the Apostles' Creed, as we refer to it now. And these were the fundamental elements of the faith, where the church would say, this is the core of what we believe. So it seems appropriate that we even today would join with the nations and stand and express the Apostles' Creed together. So would you do that here with me, Imago and Mosaic? Let's stand together. And as a way of reminding and declaring, this is what we say in response to the question, Christian, what do you believe? Let's express this together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Don't you just love knowing? We're joining with the nations and the centuries in declaring those truths. Amen. You can be seated. So, getting back to our study, even though those churches could largely agree on these creeds, Understandably, as the church moved into different cultures in the early centuries, Christians, it might surprise you, began to have some disagreements. In fact, one of them we read of early on is the Apostle Paul in Galatians 2. Remember where Paul says, I had to confront Peter face to face because he started preaching a different gospel. And there were other disagreements across the Roman Empire as the church started being molded in different ways. One of the actual significant struggles was over language. I mean, what would the language in worship be? Should it be Aramaic or Greek or Latin? And, and so there were tensions at times, particularly between the Jewish congregations and Gentile congregations. But nevertheless, wonderfully, there remain just one church, one body of believers in different locations. And so they called themselves the one holy Catholic church. That was it. And by Catholic, they weren't referring to any particular denomination or tradition. The word Catholic actually comes from the Greek word katholikos. That's the word. And that simply means universal. That's what Catholic means. That's what we just declared. We believe in a universal church. It's not speaking of a particular denomination. Simply meaning that everyone who called on the name of Jesus was part of one universal church. It didn't matter what language you spoke or where you lived. Okay, so today we're looking at Roman Catholicism. Now, interestingly, most, most Roman Catholics today wouldn't typically use that term. They simply refer to themselves as the Catholic Church. It was actually Protestants who began to use the term Roman Catholicism because we Protestants also see ourselves as part of the Catholic universal church, right? So we could rightly say in this way, I'm an Alliance Catholic Christian. There are Baptist Catholic Christians, and there are Roman Catholic Christians. 
Now, for Roman Catholic Christians, as we know, the center, the seat, and authority of power and influence in the church is found in the teaching office, in the, in the papal office. It's located in the city of Rome, now at the Vatican. Which, with that then leads to our second overarching question. So where did Roman Catholicism come from? If there was one Catholic church, why did it specifically, this branch, become Roman Catholicism? How did they begin to have such significant influence through Rome in the early church leadership? And, and for this, we go back to the early centuries of the church. And, and what happened as Christianity started spreading was that in cities where the church was growing particularly, and, and this map here gives you an idea. These were some of the cities, Rome, Constantinople, Antioch, Jerusalem, Alexandria. There were others. In these cities where the church was expanding particularly, they, they needed more oversight. So the cities began to have bishops essentially, that would oversee the local churches. And, and these bishops were called papas. That's simply the Greek term for father. So they were to be kind of the spiritual father overseeing the local churches of a particular city. And understandably, over time, the papas, the, the bishop of the city of Rome, came to be looked on for particular leadership, even by the other bishops. And, and partly that was because Rome was the city of the capital of the Roman Empire. But additionally, it was because there were more Christians in the city of Rome in that time than in any other city of that day. So Rome began to have influence. And the influence of the Roman bishop continued to expand until somewhere around the 4th century, likely, the bishop of Rome himself started to be called the papas of all the other bishops, kind of the spiritual father of all the other bishops. And the bishop of Rome, he kind of considered the other bishops as his spiritual sons. So it was this early on, this clear sense of hierarchy to a degree among the bishops. Now we're going to see this next week as we look at Eastern Orthodoxy. But you can understand the bishops in the eastern part of the Roman Empire who spoke Greek, they weren't very fond of looking to Rome for leadership. That makes sense, doesn't it? In fact, some bishops in Africa and Jerusalem actually split away from the Roman bishop's leadership because of doctrinal disagreements. But in general, amazingly, for the first millennium, the East accepted the leadership of Rome. One Catholic church. But there continue to be these growing tensions between the East and West in the body of Christ over certain doctrines until compacting this, the year 1054. And in the year 1054, the one holy Catholic church divided. And the bishop of Constantinople, he anathematized the bishop of Rome. And the Roman bishop anathematized the bishop of Constantinople. And the body of Christ split in two in what history calls the Great Schism. And the Eastern Christians, they started calling themselves the Orthodox Church. And in their gatherings, they spoke Greek. The Western Christians referred to themselves as the Catholic Church. And in their gatherings, they spoke Latin. And that divide largely has continued to this day. So in general, I want you to have this picture. In general, this is how Eastern Orthodox Christians view church history. Up until 1054, they viewed there was one apostolic church. But at the Great Schism in 1054, this is what happened. The Orthodox Church continued on in the apostolic faith, 
while they believed that the Catholic Church went sideways. This is how Roman Catholics view church history. Did you catch this not-so-subtle change? So they would say, if you want to get back to the actual apostolic faith, you need to come back to the Catholic Church. It was the Orthodox Church that went sideways. So I want you to have this picture in mind, particularly as we walk through this series. Because the interesting thing, what you're going to find interesting in coming weeks, as this diagram expands and denominations and traditions expand, every branch essentially, every denomination thinks they are the ones preserving the apostolic faith. That's the picture. Okay? So that's like a thousand years of church history in about 15 minutes or so. Okay? So we consider that and say this. We understand this is what the Orthodox Church claims. This is what the Catholic Church claims about their identity as a one true apostolic faith. And then I would say this. Certainly, I would believe that those are a tradition or traditions in which you can follow Christ. But I don't believe that Roman Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy has a corner on the truth and that all the rest of us are in error. So, so today, I, I could look at my authentically believing Roman Catholic friends and, and could say to them, you and I are brothers and sisters in Christ solely through faith in Jesus. But we do look at some things differently. We do have some significant differences in how we understand this life of faith, the teachings of Scripture. There are some significant differences, which, which I think leads to the third question for us. How has doctrine been formed in the Roman Catholic Church? If they're using the same scripture, how do they at times view things so differently than Protestantism, for example? How'd they arrive at their teaching? And, and so I want you to catch it just to kind of have this picture. In, in the Roman Catholic Church, the development of doctrine, it, it's, it's understood to be a function of the Holy Spirit working through the teaching office of the church, the magisterium. The magisterium is the Pope and his bishops. And, and the Catholic Church believes that, that, that the New Testament preserves for us the, the teachings of the Gospels or the Apostles. And it's a primary basis for everything we believe in practice as followers of Jesus. But for Roman Catholics, the Bible is a starting point for all faith and practice. And this is where it shifts a bit. However, Catholics believe that the Holy Spirit didn't stop teaching and revealing his truth when the Apostles died but that the Holy Spirit continues to reveal to us and teach us truth across centuries of time with new and at times increasing revelation through the magisterium, through the Pope and his bishops. And, and while all that truth then is, is for them, it's rooted and grounded in the New Testament. It, it's like they view it that there are seeds of truth in the New Testament that, that won't come to fruition or clarity at times even for centuries. Sometimes hundreds of years later, as the Pope, as, as the bishops begin to discern what seeds of truth mean in Scripture. So, so that's, why, that's why the Catholic Church looks at doctrine as, as something that is continually, it's progressively being revealed within the church while it's always rooted in Scripture. How's that different for us? Now, we Protestants, speaking in very general terms, we Protestants typically see things a bit differently than that. We too believe that the Holy Spirit continues to work through the church, certainly. But we Protestants would be far more inclined to say, when it comes to doctrine, show me in Scripture. 
Show me in Scripture, New Testament, where it was done this way. I mean, show me in the New Testament that this is what the apostles actually believed. And, and if you can't point to it fairly clearly in New Testament, then don't tell me it's an essential thing for me to do or believe to follow Jesus. Now, can't you see how that would cause some friction uh, between Catholic and Protestant doctrine and viewpoint, right? That kind of understanding. Now, now one thing for us to remember as Protestants, before we get too arrogant in this, is that even we Protestants believe that the Holy Spirit does work to reveal and bring clarity to doctrine in the church that isn't explicitly in the New Testament. I mean, for example, we believe this, for one, because the contents of the New Testament, again, they weren't even finally accumulated and identified till about 382 A.D., so really think of this, for the first four centuries, the church, they had the letters being passed around, they had the gospels being passed around, certainly, but they didn't have a finalized New Testament for nearly four centuries. And that tells us that while the writings of the New Testament were, were written mostly in the first century, it took some time for the church to determine which books rightly express and reflect the teaching of Christ. Now, again, as Protestants, we believe the Holy Spirit guided in that process of the formation of the New Testament canon, that he worked through the leaders, the bishops of the church to bring clarity. And another example of this, though, is the doctrine of the Trinity. Just another example. I mean, because what we declare about the Trinity isn't clearly defined in the New Testament. And in fact, the term Trinity isn't even found in Scripture anywhere. But we read scripture, we read scripture, it speaks of a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who are God, but the relationship of them together isn't specifically laid out. So remember this, it, it took several hundred years, think of that, several hundred years for the church to put into words an expression that they felt held true about God, that there is one God eternally existent in three persons. So let's say this, at times, at times we Protestants have developed doctrine in ways similar to Catholicism. But again, we Protestants would tend to say, okay, if the connection of a doctrine to the New Testament is not fairly clear, if, it, if it's hazy, we're going to be doubtful about it. And again, these are the points then where Catholics and Protestants tend to bump up against one another because there are times when it's, it's difficult to understand, okay, how did the Roman Catholics get that doctrine out of that biblical text? It, it doesn't make sense to us at times. For example, one of the Catholic doctrines that reflects this is that surrounding Mary, Mary the mother of Jesus. Now, think about this. When we Protestants asked, what are we to believe about Mary? What would we do? We would open up the New Testament typically, do a word study, find every passage that refers to Mary, and understand, and look, what does it tell us about Mary? I've done that myself. And we would come to the conclusion, well, clearly Mary was a leader in the early church. She was there on the day of Pentecost. She's, Mary is to be revered, Scripture says. She's to be used, viewed as blessed among all women. She's an example of obedience and holiness. We are to thank God for Mary. And we would stop right about there. But the Catholic teaching, though, goes significantly farther than that. One example is the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. Now, that doctrine holds that Mary was immaculately conceived by her parents, meaning she was born without original sin. 
that, that while all other human beings have been born since the fall with the mark of sin upon them, Mary was preserved from original sin so that her son, Jesus, could be born without original sin. Now we'd say, where is that in the New Testament? And it isn't explicitly expressed in scripture, but it came from Catholic theologians, the magisterium reflecting on scripture and what scripture says about the identity and nature of Jesus and nature of Mary and coming to this conclusion. So again, we Protestants would respond by saying, okay, that's your theological conjecture, but how can you say I need to believe that if scripture itself doesn't explicitly teach it? So it is, it is this different approach to the formulation of doctrine that causes so much of the disagreement among Protestants and Catholics. That all make sense? Hope so, in getting a picture. Which then leads to our fourth question. So what can we learn from Roman Catholicism? And in light of how long it's been around, in light of how long these people have been seeking to follow Jesus, what can we learn from them? In our remaining minutes, I'd, I'd like to point to three things that, that I do think it would do well for us to learn from our Roman Catholic friends. And there are clearly more than that, but I'm just going to touch on three of them. What can we learn from Catholicism? And the first thing, one of the things I think we can learn is the power of ritual. The power of ritual. Would you say that phrase with me? The power of ritual. You know, in the Protestant Reformation, when the, when the reformers, when they looked at the church, part of what they saw in the 16th century was that many individuals, the people that were part of local congregations, it seemed to them that largely the people were just going through religious motions of, of the Christian faith. They were just kind of walking through these rituals, but they didn't seem to be internalizing the faith at all. There didn't seem to be any sense of a new birth, of people experiencing that the work of the Holy Spirit sanctifying them, beginning to transform their lives. And, and so to the reformers, the people seemed to just kind of be going through the motions of ritual. And the church itself seemed to be that way. It seemed like it was just filled with primarily dead ritualism. And so the reaction of the Protestant leaders to that empty ritualism was to cast out almost all ritual, to take all these practices and say, our concern is people might think they are accepted by God just by doing religious rituals. So to make certain they don't have this misunderstanding, we're going to get rid of almost all ritual so they can be clear. And so unfortunately, many times the reformers threw out the baby with the bathwater because ritual actually is very important to our lives. You know that, don't you? You have rituals in your life, even if you don't recognize them as that. I, I would guess if we filmed each of you for the next 30 days in your first hour of morning, we would see rituals that you have. You make your coffee, you, you check out a website, you do your devotional reading, whatever it will. But because we have these patterns of living and, and understand that, that's your morning ritual. And in rituals, they add a certain rhythm to our lives. Rituals are sometimes habits that, that we get into. And the thing is, rituals can shape our souls. At time for good, at time for not so good. But good ritual can mold our souls properly. 
And, and part of what is beneficial in the Catholic Church then, in, in their rituals, we've sought to integrate even to our own worship expressions here at Southview. One, one example being liturgical year. Now that's hardly just Roman Catholic, but that's one pattern. And I'd say this, there would be a time, not perhaps that long ago, where an Alliance church never would have observed the season of Lent or even the season of Advent because it was viewed as too kind of a tendency towards dead ritualism, too ritualistic. But the thing is, as we just think of this, as we just experienced Advent as our leading up to Christmas, as, as we let Advent prompt us, remind us, of, of what Christ was doing for us. The, the four weeks of Advent, they prepare us for celebrating, for expecting the coming of Christ that in Bethlehem and this coming yet to come. And, and for me, I would say this. If I tried to walk through the Christmas season now without Advent, it would seem very empty to me. Would it to you? I, it, it's such a benefit to me to be reminded, in light of all the shouting our culture does about what Christmas is about, it's a way that I can be reminded of what the kingdom of God is actually about, what we actually are celebrating uh, together. And so Advent helps shape it. It molds my life and my thinking in line with the gospel. And, and that is true with all the seasons of the church year. I mean, think about this. Do you think it might have been for a reason that God gave seven rituals, seven feasts, festivals to the people of Israel in their course of the year to remember? So that every, every year they would walk through Passover. They would walk through the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They would walk through the Feast of First Fruits, the Day of Atonement, the, the Feast of Tabernacles. Do you think God might have known something of how ritual can possibly for, positively form us as humans? I believe it is. And, and that's why I also believe it's beneficial for us to have elements of ritual in our collective worship gatherings. Not if they are lifeless, not if they're empty, but if they are regular reminders of the kingdom of God, those can be very beneficial things for us. For example, that's why in our gatherings, that's why we pass the peace of Christ when we gather. Both because we believe from scripture that our words of blessing to one another have power, but also we do it to remind us as a ritual, we are a gathering centered on Jesus. We are not just a social gathering. We are ones who pass the peace of Christ to one another. And again, there are so many other beneficial, rich rituals we could speak of, but I'd encourage you to reflect on this. What rituals do you follow? to help you grow in your faith? What patterns have you integrated into your life that, that help keep you daily mindful of who you are in Christ and the life to which you're called? Because I believe this is an area where we really can learn from our Roman Catholic friends on this, the power of ritual. And a second learning we can get from the Catholic Church is this. I think from them we can learn the power of reverence. Say that phrase with me, would you? The power of reverence. Reverencing those things which are sacred. You know, I, I do fear that many times as Protestants, and, and particularly as evangelical Protestants, Protestants uh, we've set aside the sense of sacred in our life at worship at times. I mean, we look at Jesus and we rightly say, we, we sing of him, what a friend we have in Jesus. 
We speak of Jesus as, as a friend who sticks, sticks closer than a brother. And how incredible to be offered a, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So we rightly emphasize that in our Protestant gatherings. And, and many times, we would say this, many times in Roman Catholicism, that hasn't been emphasized enough. And, and Jesus is only viewed as some kind of distant spiritual figure. And this is an area where I think our Catholic friends could learn from us on this. And just the potential understanding of what it means to have a personal relationship with God through Jesus. But what we can learn from our Roman Catholic friends is that our friend who sticks closer than a brother is also king of kings and lord of lords. That is Jesus. And we're to respond to Jesus in that manner. I mean, Jesus is, he's a friend, he's a brother to us. But we are to reverence, we're to honor him. Again, let me go back to the words of the psalmist as he speaks words of kind of calling to worship. In, in Psalm 95, again, this is what we read, verse 6 and 7. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. How do we reverence <laughs> You know, I, I actually, I do appreciate how Roman Catholics, if you go to a Roman Catholic worship gathering, I appreciate how when they come into the worship gatherings, generally they genuflect or kneel as they are coming into the presence of Christ before the Eucharist meal. I appreciate how they cross themselves at the reading of the gospel and as a way of physically expressing, Father, let your word be on my mind, let it be proclaimed from my lips, let it be on my heart. You know, can that become a re meaningless ritual? Absolutely. But it can also be a helpful physical prompt to remember, I want him in every part of my life. All come to me with your gospel, Father. And, and think about this as well. That's not a new creation by the Roman Catholic Church. Followers of Jesus have been doing that since the first or second century. And, it, and at times in our evangelical churches, I think we miss that sense of reverence. I mean, are we to come into our gatherings with joy, with a sense of friendship, community? A absolutely, we're to do that. But also, there's to be a sense where we're coming into the presence of our king. So perhaps we could learn from our Catholic friends on this. We could learn about the power of reverence. And then thirdly, I want to just touch on briefly. I think we can learn from them as well, the power of Eucharist. The power of the Eucharist. Just say that phrase with me, would you? The power of the Eucharist. And, and uh, I'll tell you, I can't give this near enough time. Maybe you're happy for that. But I, it, I, back in September 2012, I think I talked about the Holy Meal. If you want to get some more expansive thoughts on that, check out on our website that message on the Holy Meal. But, but thinking of a Roman Catholic worship gatherings, at every Roman Catholic worship service, the Eucharist, the Holy Communion is served. And it's, viewed, it's the high point of the service for them. It, the high point is not the sermon. It's not singing. And in fact, some Catholic priests I know won't preach a sermon more than five or six minutes in, in light of that. And, and I know exactly what you're thinking right now. <laughs> but if they, they do that because their focal point is the Eucharist. It's experiencing and receiving from Christ. Now on this doctrine, it's interesting, on this doctrine, Catholics actually take the biblical teaching on the Eucharist more literally than Protestants do in light of Jesus' words. Listen to Jesus' 
really stunning words in, in John 6. In John 6, verse 53, this is what we read. Jesus' words. Teaching in the synagogue, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Roman Catholics therefore believe that the bread and cup of Holy Communion literally become the body and blood of Jesus upon the invocation prayer of the priest. So they would say that the appearance of the bread and cup stay the same. The bread still looks like bread. It still tastes like bread. But the substance of the bread and cup are changed. The substance is changed. It's transubstantiation, a transformation of substance. So the receiving the Eucharist, therefore, it is the source and summit of the Catholic faith because they're receiving from Christ, just as Jesus described in John 6. Now, this understanding of communion, understand, this was fairly common even in the first century of the church. In fact, there was a bishop, Ignatius of Antioch. Listen to what he wrote around 100 AD. So fairly early, he wrote this. The Eucharist is the medicine of immortality, the antidote to death. In this meal, I offer to cross Christ my life, and I receive his. Isn't that a great picture? The medicine of immortality. Now understand, for Catholics, they don't believe that Jesus is somehow re-sacrificed every time at the communion meal. But they believe, rather, that mystically, in some spiritual sense, that when we receive communion, we are connecting with an event that took place 2,000 years ago. And Jesus is looking down on us from the cross, offering to us what he provided at the cross. Now I know, if you didn't grow up in that tradition, maybe even if you did, that can sound very odd, right? Because it, as Protestants, we believe that Jesus' words in John 6 were meant to be taken more figuratively about how desperately we need him. But understand this. Even in Protestantism, the wealth of Protestant teaching across the centuries on this has said that communion is far more than just a memorial. In communion, we are rightly to remember what Jesus did for us. Scripture tells us to do that. But the teaching of our, even our tradition would say, but there's more than just remembering that takes place at communion. There's a real presence of Christ uniquely in that communion meal and understanding what Christ gives us. So I would add this. Although we would certainly not agree with certain elements of their doctrine about the Eucharist, I do think we can learn from the Roman Catholic Church about our need to treasure communion. When we receive the invitation from Jesus to come to the meal, do you have a sense of longing, anticipation to receive this meal? And I'll tell you this, when Jillian and I are away from Southview in another place, wherever it might be, on a weekend, when we're looking for a church to gather with, our first priority is not looking to say, where can we get a great sermon? That's not a bad thing. But our first priority when we are away is to say, where can we receive communion? Because in that we are fed by Christ in spiritual ways we don't even understand. And I'll tell you this, even as I was preparing for this message, it, it felt very wrong, and maybe it does to you, that we are not right now going to the communion table and receiving it as a body. Does it feel like we should be doing that? <laughs> I, I, and I wish we would. And, and so in some sense, 
Let's drink in the sense of anticipation for communion as we receive it at least monthly here together, but it should be a sense where I might miss other weekends. I will not miss when we gather around the table because I want to receive from Christ in this meal. Oh, on this we could say so much more, friends. But in this, I truly believe there's a sense where we can learn from the appreciation of, of Jesus' teaching as viewed through our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters about this meal he's given to us. We can learn about the power of ritual, the power of reverence, and the wonderful power of the Eucharist. So this weekend and weeks to come, can I encourage us to be open to how we might be molded by learning from our other followers of Jesus in the traditions of faith. Amen? So let's pray together. And Father... Teach us to rightly divide your word of truth, we pray. Would you lead us to be a gracious people, one who stand clearly for the gospel and defend it as the apostle Paul did, but would also walk in grace and understanding and learning from those of other traditions and understandings. Teach us on this path, we pray, so that we would know you, enjoy you, and proclaim you by the power of your spirit. This we ask, and again together, all God's people say, amen.